You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Charlie Wren, head of the Wren Lab. Charlie, how are you doing? Hey, good, Richard. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, tell me about the, uh, your research. It looks, uh, from the brief description, I'd rather you describe it than me, but it looks uh, super interesting. Tell me what you're working on. Sure. So I'm Charlie from Biomedic Engineering here at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. So our research is focused on, uh, one of the major focus of our work is focused on lung engineering. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to engineer lungs using combining stem cells and uh, biomaterials for uh, transplantation therapy. One of the major needs we see in the clinics is, you know, organ transplantation is the, almost the final option for end-stage organ failure. However, we simply don't have enough organs for, um, for the need. We don't have enough lungs. We don't have enough livers. So what we're trying to do is trying to develop a technology that will engineer lungs with very similar structure and composition to native lungs for transplantation. What, what makes the lung um, difficult to 3D print or to transplant or to work with? I would think, you know, it's filled with lots of structures and alveoli, and it seems to be a very delicate organ. I don't know much about it, but, uh, you know, maybe give us a feel for what, what's unique and special about lungs and makes them challenging to deal with. I think 3D printing, speak of that, is a very promising technology. It's a very different angle to approach a similar question. I think uh, one thing we see, as you can see, the lung is primarily made of two parts. One is the airway part, where the air goes in and out. And the other part is the vascular part. So uh, so in the alveoli, which is the distal part of the lung, where there's a lot of little air sacs, is densely wrapped around by vascular cells. And once, if we go, uh, go through a very uh, conventional medical or biological processing called histology, you can cut a section of the lung. What you see is like a honeycomb structures. It looks like very random, a lot of airway, air sacs. However, all those structures are actually very well organized, organized because the air only goes through the trachea. Then the air will able to go through the trachea and then reach every single alveoli. And the blood, where in the body, the blood will exchange gas in air with the airway. All the blood is coming from the pulmonary artery. They will perfuse every single those little air sacs and then coming out of mm. the pulmonary vein. So this is a very highly organized structure, which is so far still hard for us to recapitulate from, you know, a synthetic approach. That's why our approach is trying to use something we call decellularized organ scaffolds to do this job. And we think because the dedicated structure and require very well organized structure to do the job as a lung to breathe, to exchange gas, we think how about we start with a scaffold? Just like, you know, we're trying to build a, a complicated house uh, or building 
with very dedicated internal structure. You know, our strategy mm. is to build the building by strip the, the drywall out of the building, but keep the frame structures and then rebuild the drywall, basically. Is the, um, how much surface area does the lung have? And if you use a scaffolding to recreate you know, the interface where the, the blood and the oxygen get exchanged, would that take away from the available surface area? Or you know, does that mean that the scaffolding itself needs to act as a, uh, I don't know, a permeable membrane through which oxygen can diffuse? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think a long time ago when I read a textbook, people say in the human lung, the, the gas exchanging surface, equals to, uh, I don't remember, maybe a, a football court or a tennis ball court. So it's a very large surface area. So with our technology, with the desalinization, we actually don't change that. So the only thing we do with desalinization is we remove the cells. So we get rid of the airway epithelial cells, are the cells covering the airway surface. We also get rid of the vascular cells. Then you may ask, why do you want to get rid of the cells and then later put cells back? It's primarily from the immunological perspective. You know, you eventually we'll probably... Once we have a patient need a lung to be engineered for transplantation, we need to find another source of lung as a scaffolding. So mm. the lung, for human use, very likely the lung either coming from another donor organ or coming from an animal with a similar uh, size mesh. For example, right now people are looking at uh, pig lungs because the, the size and architecture of the pig lungs are actually very similar to human lungs. However, we cannot simply take a pig lung, give it to human because there's going to be a xeno barrier they're going to be very strong right. immunological rejection. However, a lot of research in the past has shown that one of the main source of the immune rejection is actually coming from the cells instead of the scaffold. So our strategy is by removing all the peak cells by keeping the scaffold, we dramatically remove, reduce the immune rejection that can come out of from a porcelain material. Then we'll replace the cells, replace the porcelain cells with human cells. And potentially, because of a lot of progress from human stem cell biology, we can actually potentially replace that with the patient's own cells. Well, I was just thinking, I was imagining the structure of the lung as you were talking, and I know it goes from, you know, it's like a tree. It goes from yeah. a, a big trunk where the air comes in and then it branches out and branches out and branches out, and the gas exchange occurs at the smallest level, right, the alveoli, is that right? Yes. So uh, when you're considering scaffolding and cells and you know, uh, replacing parts of the lung, I guess the easiest part is the trunk part, the initial airway intake. And then as you have to have more finely detailed scaffolding, it'll get more difficult. And probably the most difficult part will be the actual gas exchange surface, the alveoli area, right, to recreate? Yeah, so actually what we're trying to do is we're trying to do the recreation part to a certain extent, but actually a lot of the work has been done already by the scaffold. So once we remove the cells, actually the compartment, let's say there's an airway compartment, there's a vascular compartment, they're still intact. So after we remove all the cells, if we perfuse some cells from the trachea, which is the, the most proximal part of the airway, if we perfuse it into the lung, they can actually very easily reach the very distal part of the lung. Similarly, in the vasculature, if we perfuse vascular and arterial cells from the pulmonary artery or the pulmonary vein, they can actually reach the final capillary level. Of course, this requires a lot of optimization of the procedures, but that's actually pretty straightforward. We can do it. Okay. So where, where is the current challenge right now? What, you know, what goals are you working on or what milestones are you working to hit? You know, tell me some specifics about them. Yeah, so I can, you know, we can break that to two parts. I'll, I can talk about 
little bit about the the current challenges about this whole um, you know organ engineering or a law engineering based on the Tisara scaffold. So so one thing is the cells we're using, you know, because eventually the function of organ will be decided by the function of the cells. However, currently, even though there has been a lot of progress on the stem cell biology, still we're limited by our capability of getting a real good cells for lung reconstruction. So speaking of two sides, first on the airway side, there's a lot of progress on deriving different kind of airway epithelial cells or alveolar epithelial cells from IPS, but still um, many of the cells are limiting their function. They're some still somewhat immature compared to our native counterparts. Similarly, on the vascular side, a uh, study from vascular biology shows that different organs actually have very different vascular phenotypes, and the lung has their own vascular phenotypes. However, right now, we're still using fairly generic endothelial cells for regenerating the vasculature, which has to be changed if we want to regenerate a functional lung with a good vascular function that can last for a long time. That's one limitation. That's a limitation well, is... A uh, quick, quick question about that. So... You said you want to you want to create IPS, so induced pluripotent cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. Are you saying that? Um, the, well, I guess it makes sense depending on the type of tissue you're using to try to induce the pluripotency. And if it's further down the hill, if it's more differentiated, it's harder to get the cells that you're looking for, right? Yeah. So we have to uh, not only us. There's a big community working in this field is trying to derive the right uh, induction condition to educate the induced pluripotent stem cells to become the cells we want, ideally with higher efficiency. And then eventually we'll have to purify those cells. And then after purification, we'll have to develop the cocktail, growth factor cocktail, to maintain the cell phenotype and then deliver those cells into our scaffolding to make the functional tissue. Huh. Interesting. I guess, I guess the source of cells you're using, they've been epigenetically changed so maybe that's why some are, are uh, easier to induce pluripotency and that's useful to you versus not, right? It's just right, a wild guess. but Yeah, actually there are some. I didn't see much on the, on the lung, but I think that's definitely a possibility. Uh, people actually realize there's epigenetic imprinting in the cells uh, even before and after they get reprogrammed to become IPS. Some IPS are easier to become certain cell type than the other. I think that's definitely one possibility. The other possibility is just we simply just need to do further more investigation to further develop the protocols to further mature cells to be a, a equivalent cells compared to our the cells we're finding in the native body. And then that's more we know a lot about epithelial cells. And for the vascular cells, which are another big part of the lung, because the main function of the lung is exchange gas to pass the gas from the airway into the, the blood or and then uh, to let go the, the carbon dioxide. We really know very limited about the lung vasculature, about their molecular phenotypes, their cellular phenotypes, or their functional profiles. That really limit us, limit our capability of regenerating those functional lung-specific vascular cells for regenerating a good lung vascular function. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I, I interrupted you, but continuing on, what are uh, what are some of the other challenges? Yeah. So the other category is, you know, now I talk about, you know, we need different cell types. We need them to be mature. Then the next question is, how do we bring different cell types together to do a single job, to make a good functional organ? If we say, what is the definition of the organ? It's a functional entity composed of all different kinds of cells, but they work in a very synergistical way. They're organized in a very good way so that they have a single or cohesive functional output. 
And then in the lung, you know, we talk about lung epithelial cells, vascular cells. There are many other cells that should be involved for engineer functional lung. For example, there are stromal cells like fibroblast cells. And many people believe that hematopoietic hematopoietic cells like macrophage may also play an active role during the lung regeneration. And then those factors haven't been played, you know, put into the context very much yet. There has been some study, but not very comprehensive yet. So that's what subject to some future investigations. And then once we bring in all the key players, now how do we develop a good culture condition that can keep all different kinds of cells happy? So in the biomedic research or in um, in, in the, the cell manufacturing industry, you know, people tend to usually we work with a single purified cells, and we we know that we have developed a specialized uh, a culture media to keep the certain cells to be happy. And then now we're going to be working with five, ten, or even more cell types together in a single organ. How do we develop a good media to support all, all the different cell types? And how can we... What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit MetabolicHealthSummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Help the cells set up a communication with each other so that they can work together to have a good functional output. That's something, you know, remains a challenge in the field. And then the next challenge is, you know, eventually we want the organ to be transplanted, and then we need to develop a good in vitro evaluation system to tell us when the organ will be ready for transplantation. To do that, we probably need to develop an approach to functionally evaluate the organ mm. from different aspects, and then eventually combine that with some pilot transplantation studies in animal models so that we can say when the organ will be ready for transplantation, and however, on, on some other occasions, when the organ requires some further maturation. I think those are the, the challenges I can see in the field. 
Well, have you worked to uh, create organoids? And I've, I've spoke to a number of researchers that they're creating like kidney organoids and heart organoids, you know, like they don't have all the normal functions of the full organ, but then they're able to, uh, to test and see your functionality and learn a lot more about how the organ functions without, you know, overcoming the challenge of growing a whole one. Yes, I think we actually have a little bit of work on organoid right now going. I think organoid is a very good approach to for, you know, for regenerative medicine purpose. So one thing we can see is organoid is a very good approach to static stem cell function. You know, I, as we just talked about, we eventually need cells to build the organ, and then we, we need functional cells. And how do we know whether the cell we're getting is really functional? Organoid is a great approach to evaluate stem cell function, especially on the epithelial cell side. A single epithelial cell can actually form a, a long organoid with branching uh, architectures. So they can tell us whether the cell we're getting, we're using, is capable or not. And also, right now, there is a trend in the organoid approach is people are trying to make more sophisticated organoids. But currently, most of the organoids are still made of a single lineage of cells, uh, either lung epithelial cells, or intestinal epithelial cells, or kidney epithelial cells. Right now, there are some efforts, also as our interest, is can we make a more uh, a complex organoid composed of many different components? For example, can we make an organoid with epithelial cells, vascular cells, and stromal cells, and to really recapitulate a miniature lung culturing a dish and use that as a testing platform to address many of the challenges we just mentioned earlier. For example, we can study, can we develop a better media to support all different lineages together? And can we develop a simulation approach to educate those cells to start to communicate with each other? And also we can potentially answer the question, by having vascular cells and stromal cell support in there, can we actually stimulate the better regeneration of the lung epithelial cells? I think organoid is a very good approach to help us to address many of those challenges. You, you mentioned a couple of times that there's a lack of understanding of, uh, what, what is it, the, the microstructure of the lung or the, the vascularization or the, I guess the, the physical details of the lung itself? Or where is the lack of understanding right now in, uh, of the organ? So one big lack of understanding, I think, lies in the lung vasculature. It's partly related to my background because during my PhD, I was doing vascular development using a, a fish as a model, actually. And then, you know, during my postdoc, I was working on uh, vascular regeneration. And then when, when I tried to combine all the previous training I had, all the background I have, I realized we actually, one of the major challenges in organ engineering is to engineer vasculature. Because without a vasculature, we, we would not be able to transplant the organ. And the main organ, right. if we look at its function, is actually trying to deal with blood. Let's think about it, you know, in the lung we're trying to exchange gas with the blood, right? And then right. In, in the liver, we're trying to perform metabolic functions to process metabolite in the blood. And then if we think about the kidney, is actually trying to do filtration function with the blood. Actually, many organs, their key function is to interact or process blood. So that's why blood vessel is such a key component in our body. However, uh, there has been very a lot of knowledge, traditional knowledge from 20, 30 years ago or even earlier, we know that different organs have different vasculature. I can give you three examples, uh, the lung, the intestine, and the liver. The lung's hmm. capillary vasculature is very tight. We call it a continuous non-fenestrated. That means there's no gap between vascular cells, and then inside the vascular cells, there's no tiny windows. So hmm. generally, the lung vasculature is very tight. Otherwise, we're going to have fluid enter the airway. We're going to get drunk. We cannot breathe anymore. So and then the other example is the intestine. Intestine... Their vasculature is, we call it, 
continuous fenestrated. The, the intestinal vasculature, they have no gaps between cells, but they have windows inside the cells. And then go further down the liver vasculature, we call it discontinuous fenestrated. There are big gaps between cells. There are windows inside the cells. It's very interesting to us from many angles, especially from developmental biology and stem cell biology angle. The reason I say that is because the lung, intestine, and liver, they all come from the endoderm. As you know, we have three germ layers, endoderm, exoderm, mesoderm. All the three organs are from endoderm. However, they have three distinct microvascular phenotypes. I think from organ engineer perspective, we have to recapitulate those organ-specific vascular phenotypes in order to engineer a good functional organ. However, right now, we know very, very little about this. Wow. The more I learn about the human body, and I'm sure you experienced this, it's unbelievable how complex it is and how it all functions. It's just amazing. Right. But I think we're, we're definitely, you know, people are making progress in the field. You know, we, we saw one problem that actually helped us uncover a deeper challenge for us to conquer, but and then we can gradually bring the organ function uh, closer comparing to their native counterparts. Well, just a couple more questions on this. What are some surprises that you've gotten you know, over the last year or two in your work, maybe that inspired a, a new direction or you, you, you know, made you think, oh, man, this is even harder than I thought. Like, what, what surprises have come about recently? Uh, let me think about it. Um, so one surprise, you know, when we work on this organ engineering uh, based on the organ scaffold is the cells actually, once we use the right cells, once we give the right condition, the cell actually have amazing self-assembly capability. They can actually build the structure we wish them to build as long as we give them the right condition. I think we just talked about Osmo, which is a great example. You can just put a single cell into a 3D hydrogel. They will just make that beautiful structure, even differentiate inside that structure. I think that that's one of the surprises I, I encounter when we work on this. So we see this many times in epithelial cells and also in vascular cells. And then what that leads us to do is, how can we provide the right environment to maximize the self-assembly capability of the cells? So I want to make that same analogy we just mentioned earlier about how to build a, build a house. So we're now, our approach, we're trying to build a house based on the, the framework of the house. But however, mm. you know, usually when we build a house, we're going to have contractors, contractors going to the house to put on the wall, put on the appliance, all kinds of things in there. However, when we engineer organs, we cannot send anybody into the organ to physically put this cell here, that cell there. We have to rely on the cell itself to find a way to go there and to build the structure they, they want to build. Actually, like I said, the surprise, the cell can actually do this. It's amazing. You, we kind of, we, we work a lot on the vascular engineering along. So if you flow vascular material cells as individual cells, like a ball, every cell is like a, a sphere, flow into the into there, once we give the right stimulation growth factors, medias, the cells can actually undergo self-organization, remodeling. Eventually, a tunnel of vascular tunnel with a lumen inside, perfusible tunnel will show up in the vasculature. So that really highlights the capability of the cells um, we're using, and that also highlights the requirement of the efforts to give the right condition to induce the cell to do the right thing in the scaffold. And, um... I probably know the answer to this already, but when um, induced pluripotent cells are put into a matrix, if they're not directed to, I mean, it, it sounds like they'll tend to make the same structure over and over and over again, right? Like, or have you seen that they'll make 
different structures than what naturally occurs in the body once they're, you know, they've been brought back to the stem cell phase. Do they ever make different structures or they always make the same exact structure that we see in the human body? So, um, so let me, let me try to get more, a better understanding of your question. Are you trying to say uh, the stem that, that gives purple stem cells uh, usually tend to make the same structure where they are coming from? Like they may come in from a skin fibroblast reprogrammed into IBS. Are you saying they tend to make skin fibroblasts, or you're saying uh, if we put a stem cell into the lung scaffold, they tend to make a lung structure. If we put it into a different organ scaffold, they will tend to make a different organ structure. Yeah, this, is the scaffold directional, or is it just like a, a scaffold and the cells literally know what to do? Like, for instance, <clears throat> the branching pattern of the, mm -hmm. um, you know, of the of the lung. Do they always make that pattern, and does the scaffold need to inform them or guide them, or it just needs to be there, and the cells just naturally know their own path and they make the right structure? Yeah, I don't think. How smart does the scaffold have to be? You know, uh, I don't think the the scaffold itself is. I think the scaffold is more providing a, a permissive environment for the cell to adhere, mm -hmm. to spread out, to build structures. I don't think there is much active infection role in the scaffold. Even though I, I'm aware there are studies showing the scaffold provides some uh, uh, supporting or facilitating signals to help certain structure get built, that's possible. But I don't believe that if you put a cell, a more um, peripotent cells, or the cell has multiple capabilities, if you put that cell onto a lung scaffold, they will become a lung cell, or if you put that cell into a liver scaffold, they will become a liver cell. I don't think that will happen very often. So that's why, you know, when we put cells into a scaffold, we actually try to differentiate cells first. If we want to make a lung with a lung scaffold, we actually have to make lung cells first from IPS and then put those differentiated lung cells into the scaffold instead of rely on the scaffold to educate the cells to become a specific organ cells. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to get an idea for, you know, how, how uh, smart the cells are, but they're uh, Yeah, actually that's a which we, we actually get asked a lot, you know, um, from, you know, people when we discuss our, our research with, because it's such an intuitive idea. Earlier, we have a lot of discussion. When we enter the field and start to work on, from the beginning, we're having a hypothesis, do we have a zip code in the scaffold? Does the cell recognize any right. special effects on the scaffold that will feed back on the cells to educate them to know what they should be? Um, I think based on what I have, seen so far, it's not that obvious. We have to kind of guide ourselves through to educate them to, to become the cell type we want and then pull them into a scaffold. One key thing I think the scaffold is giving us is the, is the anatomical architecture. Is that's, for example, like you said, the branching, the, the several branching airway structure and also the branching basket structure and also the the spatial organization between airway structure versus vascular structure, that's the key information we want to get from the scaffold. Hmm. Okay. Well, well, very good. So what's ahead for the next uh, year or so or you know, a couple of years? What do you expect? What kind of milestones do you think you're going to hit or it's just open-ended? Yeah, I think from our end, we're interested in, uh, in two uh, major uh, directions, uh, which is related to this lung bioengineering. Uh, one side is on the stem cell, the other side is on the biomaterial side. So as you can see, when we make a lung out of the desired scaffold, we're actually combining cells with the scaffold. That's the, the key technology we're using. So on the stem cell side, I think we're hoping to 
come up with some idea that helps to address the vascular organ-specific vascular issue. So we're trying to say, how can we make organ-specific vascular phenotypes by using stem cell engineering? By recapitulating the interaction between vascular components with the organ parenchyma during development from stem cell differentiation. That's one major direction we're working on right now. The other direction is about biomaterials, which are the deceleration organ scaffolds. I mean, we've been working with them for many years now. Uh, they're great at providing the um, anatomical architecture. However, we hope them to do more. We hope the, the scaffold itself can contain more uh, instructive information that can really guide the stem cell to do what we want them to do. It's matching part of the, the question you just asked. Does the stem cell have some, a lot of intrinsic signals to tell the cell to become this but not that? Right now, no. But we hope they can do that to a certain extent later. How do we do that? We actually hope to, to convert the scaffold, the biomaterial, into a drug-releasing platform. So we're developing some uh, chemoselective modification strategies that can allow us to selectively conjugate uh, growth factors or other instructional biomolecules, immobilize them onto the scaffold so that once we deliver cells into the scaffold, if they can interact with those signaling molecules and then to to guide the regeneration to happen more efficiently. Okay. Well, very good. So what are um, some resources for listeners where they could find out more and, you know, take a look at all the work your lab is doing and maybe get in touch? Uh, we have a, a lab website uh, I'll be more than happy to, to, to share later. And also okay. uh, the lab where I came from, uh, Dr. Hare Alt Lab at uh, Mass General Hospital, is really a pioneer in organ engineering. Uh, in, in his lab, not only people working on law engineering, uh, people also working on heart engineering, kidney engineering. Uh, they have also published um, in testing and and composite tissue engineering. I think that's another good resource for getting some of the information. Well, very good. Well, Charlie, thank you for coming on the podcast and it's, uh, super interesting work that you're doing. All right. Thank you so much, Richard. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.